Welcome to Access EDU, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of accessibility issues and efforts in higher education. I'm Megan Fogel, and I'm here to help you understand the importance behind accessibility and how it can impact the day-to-day lives of your students, faculty, and staff wherever you're teaching. Welcome to Access EDU. My name is Megan Fogel, and today I'm joined by Jesse Mayo, who is a instructor from the Department of English, uh, who has started to teach online and who has an interest in accessibility and universal design for learning. Hi, Jesse. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm excited to talk about this. So just give me a little bit of background um, on what you do as far as teaching online. Yes. So, um, so I'm actually situated in the English department, but my major field is disability studies. So disability studies is a framework that I've utilized in pretty much all of my classes, um, whether they be face-to-face or online. Um, and so universal design, notions of accessibility, that's something I've been thinking about pretty much throughout my entire teaching career, and I'm currently in my ninth year of teaching, but this is only my first semester ever teaching online. So I'm still very much learning um, and figuring out, you know, what works best for students, what works best for me, how to develop a sense of community in the classroom, even if that classroom consists of a digital space. Awesome. Uh, uh, and obviously, you know, I became familiar with universal design through my work um, in the in disability studies. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about what that means in the classroom, where in some ways, in the online classroom, whereas in some ways, there are so many more options, so many more possibilities, um, and in other ways, you can feel restricted through the platform. So thinking about how universal design and notions of accommodation and accessibility and adaptation all come into play in that space. Absolutely. So in teaching these disability studies or taking disability studies courses, um, how aware are students of accessibility and web accessibility specifically? Um, well, what's so interesting is, um, is I think a lot of students, particularly in terms of the like college classroom, their familiarity with the word accessibility or like notions of accessibility comes often through um, the accessibility and accommodation statements. Um, and so it often gets sort of fixed into this notion of um, accommodation and accessibility is only applicable to disabled students. Right. Um, and only disabled students who are registered with university services. When in fact, that is incredibly important and something that does need to be emphasized. Um, but also, you know, life throws us lots of curveballs, and so oftentimes, you know, um, I consider universal design 
as an opportunity to then sort of like adapt the space, right? And so that might mean if a student has a family emergency or, um, you know, an illness, an, an unexpected illness, whatever the reason that there is that space for flexibility. And I think that's a lot of what universal design um, is about in the classroom. And I think sometimes students come in and there's just a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear around deadlines. There's a lot of fear around expectations. And a lot of times that fear in itself can be really limiting um, for students. And so how to alleviate a lot of that concern while also being like, you have expectations, of course, for the class. Um, but then in terms of accessibility and um, the online space, I mean, students who are, I guess, like the word is like traditional students. So I guess that might mean students who go directly from high school into college. Um, they are adept at using the internet in ways that I can't even imagine. I mean, I graduated from high school in 2001. Right. And... I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who I went to college with, and she said, did we have online classes where we went to school? And I looked at her, and I said, Samantha, we barely have the internet. I mean, it was so new when I was a student. And now students, they are so adept in many ways at using various platforms. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's also an interesting space where universal design can come in where if there's such a community that could be set up where you can say or engage with students and say, like, well, these are the resources that I have that I make available to you. Now, what are some of the resources that you're familiar with, right, or that, like, you want to engage with? Yeah. Um, because in, in so many ways, they have access to information that simply because of my background and my age and my you know, my scholarly interests that I am just not familiar with. Absolutely. So you talk all, a lot about the flexibility that it allows. I think sometimes people want concrete examples of how they can apply UDL. Do you have any ways or conversations that you've had with students? Yeah, I mean, well, one, one that I really, I mean, it's, you know, um, this is really only one example, but um, well, deadlines. I mean, I mentioned that a earlier. I mean, that's something when I first started teaching, I was in my early 20s, and I went into the classroom with this sense of, like, there's, you have to demonstrate your authority. And, I, and that's true in many ways, because I was a young, I was a, I was a young-looking, also, female instructor. And you know, those dynamics do play out in different ways in the classroom. So how do you demonstrate your authority? A lot of that is the sense of, like, these are the rules and you need to follow them. Um, and I was very rigid when it came to things like deadlines. Um, and I understand why a lot of instructors are. But I have found that being a little bit more flexible if a student comes to me and says, you know, X, Y, or Z, um, or for 
for me to say to like I always say to my students, um, like you don't owe me a you know explanation of what your health issue is. Like that's not owed to me. I don't require doctor's notes. I take my students' word for it because to me, like that they don't they shouldn't feel they have to disclose that information. Okay. Um, and in a way that's also I think in a way that I'm flexible because a lot of instructors I know require those doctor's notes as a way of students accepting responsibility. Um, and the counter argument is often like, well, students will take advantage of that policy. And that's probably true, but I'd rather have a student take one student take advantage of the policy than have multiple students um, either put themselves in situations where they feel unsafe or that they shouldn't be in the classroom because they don't want to disclose something to me. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so I think those are two examples um, of flexibility. Um, and I also think flexibility and, like, adaptability, they, they go hand in hand. Um, and also I think... For a long time, I had a lot of fear that, like, we would deviate from the syllabus, mm -hmm. that this is a schedule that gets prepared at the start, and every X class has a specific expectation, and then there's overall expectations for the semester, and what happens if, you know, we wind up not discussing, you know, X reading, or what happens if we change... Um, a section of the class that we were going to, to discuss documentary films, and then I realized, based on you know perceived student interest, that we wind up discussing memoir instead, right? Um, and I've become a lot more comfortable with that. Um, and again, it's always sort of there's a flip side to it. I've also had students say, "I wish that you really, really stuck to the syllabus." Um, so I think that's always a conversation happening in regards to universal design in that there isn't going to be a perfect solution for every student or for every person in the room. Yeah. Um, and how do you navigate that? And I don't have a solution. You know, I don't think any scholar at this point has written that solution or come up with that solution. It's always sort of on like a case-to-case -case or space-by-space basis. Yeah. So you're talking about how you've grown more comfortable with kind of going on the fly. Do you think that getting more in touch with accessibility issues has made you a better educator? Oh, a hundred percent. In so many ways. And in some ways, um, more, and, and, and in some ways, thinking about notions of like multimodality yeah. I think for me, it has been the biggest uh, source of, of growth as an educator, in part because I was always, I was a student also who was very fearful of modes outside of, you know, the, the types or the written text. Yeah. I'm a creative writer. I have an MFA. I, that's the world I grew up in is that you carry on your journal, right? You're constantly observing and then writing down. And because I was very comfortable with that, that was also the way I was most comfortable 
teaching, right, and instructing my students to prepare typed documents, right? Yeah. Um, I used to never allow computers in my classroom. Now that I've become, you know, integrated into disability studies, um, I'm ashamed of that former teacher, right, who didn't allow computers in her classroom. I'm, you know, embarrassed for her because that's so important to allow that kind of technology yeah. into the space. Um, and again, the counter-argument is oftentimes, well, kids are on Facebook. They are distracted. And the truth is, some students learn better if they have four tabs open. And why should I deny them that? Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. Um, you talked in an article for Inside Higher Ed, you talked a little bit about um, a syllabus statement that you include. And I think that's a good starting point. Do you happen to know that? I have the article pulled up if you don't know it offhand. <laughs> but I'd, I'd like to read it if that's okay with you. Yeah, of course. Okay, so this is uh, what Jesse had included in a syllabus in which class... This was for English 2277, looks this like. This is for an int introduction to disability studies, which is actually, it's in the English department, but is not a writing intensive class. Okay, cool. So what it says is, I assume that all of us learn in different ways and that the organization of any course will accommodate each student differently. For example, you may prefer to process information by speaking and listening, or you might prefer to articulate ideas via email or discussion board. Please talk to me as soon as you can about your individual learning needs and how this course can best accommodate them. Cool. So what is your, how do students react to that? Yeah, well, first I have to give full credit where credit is due, which is that, um, you know, that language is actually from Margaret Price. Yeah. Um, who teaches um, in the English department and is an incredible disability studies scholar. Um, and Margaret had, or Dr. Price had, um, had taught 2277 um, the semester prior, me teaching it. And it was my first time teaching a, um, a, a course that was specifically disability studies. That was not, you know, a composition class with a disability studies theme. And we talked explicitly about that accommodation statement um, in the class. We talk about it the first day. Good. And it's an interesting way to ground sort of the ethos of the classroom, right? Where I'm really encouraging students, and then they also do a um, introduction assignment, um, the really the first day of class, so they hand it in before the second day, where I also ask them not to disclose necessarily, so some do choose to do so, but to describe their own specific learning style to me. So that's also a way that I get a sense of, you know, what the dynamic is like in the classroom. Um, and in truth, you know, that class has 45 students in it. Right. So I would say about half my students love um, to participate by, like, raising their hand, being really vocal in the classroom, um, leading conversations in the class. 
And then I say about the other 50%, much preferred utilizing the, the discussion board, mm-hmm. um, which is through our um, Carmen site. Um, and so to continue the conversations that were happening in the classroom into that other platform. But I that consider that equal participation and is graded as such, right? One yeah. who does all, you know, their communication via the computer, that person gets 100% for participation. The person who's in the classroom raising their hand, engaged, that person also gets 100%. It's not that one is privileged over the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think oftentimes in terms of student feedback at the end of the semester, students really appreciate it um, and uh, that there's multiple ways of participating um, or that their ways of learning were valued. I also had students, um, so this is a little bit less common, who really just want to communicate with me via email and send, you know, follow-ups on the classroom discussion to show that they're thinking about the material, they're engaging, um, it's influencing their own interests. Um, and then, the, and that's also participation because what's the larger goal, right? The larger goal is to show how they are growing as, thinkers and um, members of their community. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, I also, maybe I read it in the article, but in one of your classes you had students doing accessibility audits around campus, but also of documents maybe? Um, Yes. So actually this is something that that I am adapting for the online section um, of Introduction to Disability Studies, which will hopefully be running in the spring, most likely running in the fall, which is, um, so basically the article that you're referencing um, is uh, sort of like part one, and then the part two is going to be when the class actually launches um, and then following up on how that process has gone um, because there is a lot of adaptability. I think in terms of people's assumptions about online teaching, there's the assumption, A, I mean, I've heard everything from online classes don't exist to online teaching isn't really teaching, right, which is all, yeah, right? right. Like, of course. Of course, online teaching is really teaching, and of course, online classes are really classes. But I think the ways for teaching to be successful and for the classroom to be successful is you cannot treat it as just a replication of the the in-person class. Absolutely. So, and that goes for assignments, and that goes for just the way that, you know, the class itself is structured. Um so for the face-to-face 2277, um, I had students do accessibility audits in groups of um, faces on campus. Um, and then they also gathered all of their data or their, um, their audits 
into a shared WordPress site. Awesome. So then they could, you know, as opposed to just submitting the audit to me, because one of the questions I always like to ask my students is, you know, well, how does the specific assignment or the specific text sort of address the larger community need? Right? And so it would be very different if they just conducted their audits and submit them to me. And then hopefully, you know, those three or four students who work together um, would, you know, have a more developed knowledge of the accessibility of that specific space. But I want the other students in my class to also consider that space. Or maybe they want to tweet out the link yeah. right, to their audit or share it with their friends. Um, it so makes it a, a meaningful and authentic assignment. Exactly. Um, and I don't, you know, I always say to them, if you don't want your name attached to something that's going to go public, like, that's totally fine. Um, still about 90% of students choose to attach their name to it, which they should because the work is, is important and um and last semester, all of my students did an amazing job, um, and they should feel proud of it. But I also understand that, obviously, what is released out into the world, oftentimes then you don't have control over how it might, you know, spiral. Right. Um, so, so the face-to-face so -face class, um, it was all physical spaces, right? So I had groups in three to four students. They did, one group did a dorm, one group did um, a dining hall, one group did a campus bus stop, um, and they get to choose their own space. Yeah, I saw one on the 11th floor of Thompson Library. Yep, yep, exactly. Right? So it's also interesting, the different types of spaces um, and the different power dynamics that are embedded in those spaces. Right? Like, what does it mean if you are teaching on the first floor of a classroom, but the only accessible bathroom is on the fifth floor? Yeah. You know, who has access to a library? I, um, all of that impacts the learning experience. For the online class, I can't assume that my students are even located in the same state. So that's why for the online section, they can do an audit of a digital space. Yeah. And they have the option to do it individually or as a, as a group. That's awesome. So, yeah. So I'm excited to see, um, you know, I think, I think I will learn a lot about having the, you know, being able to experience um, the same assignment in two very, very, very different platforms in yeah. terms of the classroom. So will you set them up with things to look for in a digital space, or are they? it's kind of on their own to research that? Yeah, so again, a lot of this, I mean, almost all of this, comes from marketplaces. Um, uh, previous classes or her current class, um, so, um, so Dr. Price, um, had a, a set of, you know, questions and guidelines for an accessibility audit, and it's immense. And so there's a version for um, graduate students, 
and there's a version for undergraduate students, and then there's a version, um, and you, you sort of, you don't need to answer all the questions in the audit, um, but only the ones that are applicable to your specific space. So some of those audit questions are directed toward um, an online space. Awesome. Yeah. Really cool. So again, there's a lot of flexibility in the assignment as well, which is something I first did an audit through um, Dr. Price's graduate seminar. Um, and uh, my group and I actually did an audit of um, the building where uh, the Office of Disability Services used to be located and it has since moved. Um, but it was really, you, we learned a lot about, you know, how even a space that values accommodation um, can in different ways not be accessible. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so I just have one final question. It's kind of a, a big picture question. So obviously... Valuing accessibility and inclusion is super important for an educator. How do you think um, it's important for students themselves to understand it? Do you think it's becoming a more marketable skill? I mean, I think considering accessibility makes people more empathetic. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's an important distinction that we talk about in my in all my classes, the difference between, like, sympathy and empathy um, and how oftentimes conversations about disability um, devolve into, like, sympathy or pity. Um, and so I think accessibility and conversations about accessibility are often opportunities to, you know, develop empathy, and that is, of course, important if you're going into any job. Um, you know, if you're going to be working with anybody, whether you're a boss or whether, you know, you are interning at a law firm, um, how you work with clients, um, I think it's, it's incredibly important. Um, and I think, you know, having the experience to engage in, it's why I was just talking to my husband about, you know, some of the things I didn't anticipate um, when I started teaching online. And, you know, certain conversations I have with my students or that I think are understood in the classroom, um, like, you know, sort of like respecting each other and like concerned tone, um, you know, respecting um, each other's opinions about things we might not agree with. Uh, and, you know, and I do have those conversations, um, but once you enter an online space, you know, it can feel like a free-for-all because I started, you know, the conversation, we started talking about notions of community, and if that community isn't there, then I think it's very easy to be quite flippant with each other or to utilize language that can be very harming. Um, and we see that all the time with trolls. I'm not right. saying my students are trolls. No. They're, they're absolutely not. Um, but that, you know, sometimes those considerations of, of tone aren't necessarily there or considered um, just because, you know, 
you're not familiar necessarily with the person on the other end. Um, and so I do think, uh, you know, some of the conversations that we have about how to engage online um, absolutely is applicable to going out into, you know, the, the, the quote-unquote real world, whatever that means, you know, in terms of your job right. um, or starting a family or, you know, yeah. Um, I think that knowing how to engage with other people through different means, even if you're not seeing the physical person, is absolutely something that can benefit. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, I guess the only thing that I would want to add. Uh, I mean, I could go. I could talk on and on and on. Right. And on. Same. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to sort of return back to some of the, like the attitudes that I or the news, uh, you know, that I received as somebody who has just started teaching online. Um, which is a sense of like, oh, well, this isn't a real thing, or it um, devalues the educational experience, um, is to emphasize that this expands the possibilities for who is receiving education, um, and also like what a college education looks like. Um, and so I actually like, really encourage a lot of instructors to teach an online class at least once, right? Even if it's not, like, your jam or it's not your thing. Um, because Ohio State, like many institutions, is expanding its online course offerings. Yeah. Um, and it's really changed for me. Thinking about online education has changed what it means to be an educator, and I'm somebody who was like, I got this. I've been teaching nine years. I come from a family of educators, like, you know, lineage, a long line of people who were in the classroom. Um, and it's really, I mean, my whole ethos has evolved through this. Um, so I don't, I think that everyone should, you know, either try it or, like, learn more about it. Absolutely. It's really important. Um, or not just Ohio State, but I think, you know, education across the country. Great. Well, I definitely agree. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me. Access EDU was created and produced by employees of The Ohio State University. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of their employer.